Hey, everybody. Welcome to Bedside Matters, the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact every single one of us every single day. We'll hopefully give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and healthier. I'm Peter Tilden. I'm joined by Anna Bocino and the man with all the answers, Dr. David Kipper. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Glad to be here. David? Fantastic. But not everybody's fantastic because they're confused about the medical issues like Like, for example, today we are going to be discussing marijuana and heart disease. Got some new information there, as well as uh, dense breast tissue. Ladies, you've heard that before. And this just happened. It appears that migraine sufferers who have problems with nausea and swallowing pills, you may be in luck because it appears to be a nasal spray that can do the job. We'll find out. And we have a caller named Avery who uh, heard a story like many of us did this week and went, excuse me, can't believe it. It's bizarre. Is it real? But first, David, what about the marijuana and heart disease? It is concerning because so many people are smoking recreationally. And also that next generation, man, when if something is legal, you know, you wonder what the abuse issue is going to be. You wonder what long-term developmental issues are going to be. So where are we now with this new information about heart disease? You're absolutely right, Peter. We've been seeing in practice younger people with heart disease. And the study that we're now addressing was done on people between 18 and 40. So it was a younger demographic. And we know that cannabinoids uh, create a a stimulation of the sympathetic nervous system. And that's the side of the nervous system that is activating. So your blood pressure goes up, your heart rate goes up, your oxygen demand for the heart goes up. So these are all stimulating properties from the cannabinoids. In fact, you are more prone to having a heart attack the first hour after you smoked. After that, the statistics go way down. Uh, We've also seen that people that smoke daily and have a dependency have about a 34 to 35% increased risk for having coronary disease and heart attacks. Smoking is the quickest way to get in trouble. There's a a quicker onset of chest pain in people that smoke versus people that are either eating the marijuana, the edibles. And also with this, we found that there's a higher incidence of lung disease, of emphysema and bronchitis. So who are the at-risk people now that we're worried about. We're worried about people that smoke daily. It doesn't seem to be the same level of concern for people that smoke intermittently. All methods of marijuana intake are dangerous to some degree. Smoking is the worst because when you smoke, as opposed to an edible, when you smoke, you're taking a very deep breath in. So you're vaporizing these toxins into different parts of the lung that you wouldn't normally do with cigarettes. And there's a certain genetic susceptibility to marijuana dependency. Mm. And I'm not even sure if that's accurate. I'm not sure if that just isn't a sense of anxiety disorders and that the marijuana is, you know, comes along with it as a, as a self-medicating issue. So what can we do? We can cut the intake, we can cut the frequency and that will actually change these statistics. Uh, Find alternate ways to mitigate your anxiety. Uh, There are dietary ways. You cut out the caffeine. Exercise creates endorphins, which are calming chemicals. Uh, Then there are the 
standard meditation, yoga, mindfulness therapies that work, that, that are anxiolytic. And you can also cut the screen time on your computers and your phones. Hey, That'll also help hey, reduce. Yeah, hey. so what if you want to do none of that? <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing, well, not funny. I'm, cut I'm, screen I'm time. To, right, you, you got to be kidding me. But what I'm hearing is so people who are anxious now hear, who use pot to take care of the anxiety are hearing this and getting even, even more anxious. I, I think that's interesting. I don't use pot because precisely because it gives me anxiety. So I think that's interesting. That, But I use it for sleep. It's the only thing I can use yeah, to sleep. To calm and you I down. Doing it, I don't enjoy it. I don't drink. Um, I don't do drugs. So it's a weird, it's a weird mm. thing. And I've cut it way, way back. David, can you repair any damage? Like when they tell you with smoking, if you smoke for seven years and you quit for five, your lungs heal up and, and you don't look like a coal mining lungs anymore? Yes, you can. And in fact, we don't see the same statistics for lung cancer in people that are smoking marijuana than we do in cigarettes. So there are different toxins, but you can create these lung problems, like I said, with inflammatory things like bronchitis and some destruction of some lung tissue giving you emphysema. Again, you have to be a, a regular, consistent, heavy smoker. I'm seeing in practice a lot more people coming in that have marijuana dependency. And what does it look like? They're anxious. Marijuana has an interesting cycle to it. So you smoke, you stimulate your sympathetic nervous system, you get a little more excited, you feel more creative, you get a little hungry. By the way, you know why you get hungry? Hold on. It's got to stimulate. Ghrelin. You're right on. It increases your ghrelin and suppresses your leptin? It does. Or it, do I, I always is, mix them up so I could be saying well, I knew of leptin. I didn't know from where's, where's ghrelin hiding in my body? It's acid is what happens, ah. that marijuana provokes stomach acid. And when there's more stomach acid, you want to neutralize that. The body wants to neutralize that. So it promotes these hormonal changes. So Peter, Anna, you're both right. So the body's like, the body's like we need flaming Hot Cheetos. That's the only way <laughs> right. to stem the tide of stomach acid. You need something that's expedient. And that's where right. the Cheetos and the Doritos come right. in. Yes. Which is another side effect of pot that I do not like because it I will eat everything. And I'll do that thing where I'm like inventing food in my house. Like I'll try to like, I'm going to take this tortilla and spread it with butter and then roll it and dip it in peanut butter and then Nutella and then roll it in nuts. Like I'll just come up with stuff. And then eventually you have like a thousand calorie snack and you're like, this is not... <laughs> This is not what the, the good way, Lord intended with this natural drug. Sounds good. Whatever you just said. I know that actually does sound good. Really good. Wow. The only other thing I want to ask before we move on, and it's not suspect, it's just I learned to ask about causality. So they do a test in a thousand people and marijuana, it appears to have an effect on COPD, but do we know if those person would have had COPD or predetermined or genetic for that anyway? Do they figure that into the study? What we do know is that we're seeing these things in a younger demographic. That's what we know. And that's the concern. And you asked the question, Peter, what does it look like? It looks like people that come in with this dependency syndrome, they are generally anxious and generally there are some that are depressed. So there's some underlying emotional issue do that they goes want to along quit? with that. No, never. So that's a hard one. So what do you do for them? So you address the issue that's, that's underneath this, as you do in any addictive disorder, you find out what the emotional issue is, and you treat that. So if it's anxiety, you give them some anxiety 
alternatives. If it's depression, you treat with antidepressants and other therapies. And are people forthcoming about their marijuana use? You have to kind of ask questions to get to that answer. If you get the mother and father out of the room, they're extremely honest. But really, that's that's how you do it. Mm. You're implying it's younger demographic, but do you have older demographic that is also addicted? Yes, absolutely. Wow. All right. Well, it's it's a big issue. It's going to be a bigger issue. So it sure is because everybody, you know, everybody claims that it's natural is always good. And I guess sometimes too much of a good thing is too much of a good thing. So moving on, I saw this uh, new regulation come out that they're going to be letting women know when they have mammograms, if they have dense breast tissue. Now, as somebody who they've always told me, Hey, BT dubs, you have dense breast tissue, which I've, I of course interpreted as um, perky young boobs, but this is in fact not the case. I've come to find out dense breast tissue is just dense breast tissue. But I guess why I want to find out from you, doc, why this means so much. Were they not telling people this and the different gradients of it? And what does it mean as far as being able to have early diagnosis of breast cancer or tumors? The problem is that women that have dense breasts have a higher likelihood for breast cancer. And there are several theories about this. One theory is the one that makes the most sense to me is that the more dense your breasts, the more cells you have in the breast, the more cells you have, the greater the likelihood you're going to have a mutation in some of those cells. So we do see an association. We don't know a cause and effect, but makes sense to me. 50% of women over 40 have dense breasts. And what the government wants to do, and I think this is good and bad, the government wants to make sure that these imaging centers are being monitored, that the centers are not only keeping up with the patients that they image that need to come back a year later or three months later, and they're also making sure that these imaging centers have up-to-date imaging capacity. That's a problem because these are very expensive machines. And the current diagnostics that we have for breast cancer are ultrasound, mammograms, and MRIs. We also have some blood markers for this. There's something called a CA-15-3. There's a CA-27-29. So there are some of these that add into our, our diagnostic list. There are risk factors based on age, based on if you've had children or not had children. If you haven't had children, you're at a higher risk. Uh, If you've had radiation to the breast, that's an issue. You're a doctor, and and I, I know you don't give mammograms on the regs or ever, but here's the thing. I've noticed from my experience with mammograms, I've had quite a few because I've had issues with lumps, like you said. The more dense breast tissue you have, the more issue you're going to have with uh, lumps and malformations or whatever. And that's been my experience for sure. But going with my girlfriends and having my own mammograms, the scientific procedure is squeeze the boob as flat as you can until the patient yelps and then you go more, a little more. And to me, I'm always like, can't we figure out how to take better pictures of boobs? Because this this doesn't seem very scientific. No, this is a big problem because women are not so excited about this. For every, for every 100 breast cancers in females, there's one in a male. So imagine sending a man in mm-hmm. for the same test. That's when we hear about it. The women rarely complain. You send a man for a mammogram, the phone's ringing in about an hour. That's so true. Do you know 
how to do a self-exam. Very few women know how to examine No, I don't breasts. think I've ever done that. So I'm going to make this very simple. You, you go to 12 o'clock on your breast, and very lightly you feel around the entire breast in a circle. Then you do it a second time, and you go a little deeper, and you feel very carefully. And the third time, you go as deep as you can. And that kind of a self-exam is likely to yield a mass if there's one hiding in there. The absolute best way to image your breasts is to do the trifecta, to get at the same time an ultrasound, a mammogram, and a breast MRI, because the MRI will pick up things that the mammogram won't, and vice versa. So it is recommended that for your initial mammograms, breast imaging, you do all three. You don't have to... I'm sorry, how do you get a breast MRI? Because I feel like I've asked for that and people don't necessarily have the imaging. So where would you find a breast MRI? At any imaging center. In, anywhere they do MRIs, they'll do a breast MRI. And that's, oh, okay. not, that's not painful, by the way. That's not a painful exam. Right. But then you use that as your baseline. And if everything is clear, you may only do the MRI every few years. Um, you'll stick with the mammogram and the ultrasound. But I do have a patient that came in, had a strong family history for breast cancer. And I did MRIs on this person for that reason. And it turns out that on the MRI, that's the first thing I did, she had two tumors in one breast. One was an aggressive tumor. One was a not-so-aggressive tumor. Goes to the oncologist, and the oncologist tells her, okay. <laughs> and the decision was, because they studied the cancers, they knew that it was an estrogen positive, it was a HER2 negative breast cancer. And the oncologist then wanted to do a mammogram, to which I said, why would you do a mammogram? This woman is going to have a mastectomy, both sides, double mastectomy. And what's the mammogram going to add to this? At a certain point, I realized that that's the way the oncologist did it, and I shut up. But that didn't make sense to me. But the reality is you want to do all three as a baseline, especially if there's an at-risk person. Got it. Well, that's great you, advice. I'm food journalist Mary Beth Albright, and I study how food affects emotions and how emotions affect our food choices. It's cutting-edge science I brought to my readers at The Washington Post and National Geographic, and now it's coming to you every week in my new podcast, Eat. You'll feel better. All about how food affects emotions and how your emotions affect what you eat. Eat, You'll Feel Better turns decades of research into one practical, actionable thing you can do every week to enhance your food-mood connection. I've dug deep into big questions like, does intergenerational trauma affect our food choices? Are ultra-processed foods affecting my emotions? And the seemingly small questions like, why do holiday cookies just taste better? We'll hear from chefs and researchers and food developers and flavorists about the food-mood connection. A new episode lands every Wednesday, the first one on November 15th, just in time for that food and mental health marathon known as the holidays. Eat. You'll feel better. Get it wherever you get your favorite podcasts. This just happened. Is it, it's, this is huge for a lot of people. I know so many people with migraines that suffer. I knew one woman who got them all the time. My mom used to get them occasionally, but they say you can only take the pill so many times because it's, to, it's, it's bad for you. It can be bad for your kidney, whatever. So you can only take X amount. 
So this new approved spray, nasal spray, is this a, 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 an amazing breakthrough for migraine sufferers that will really help a lot of people that weren't helped before? It's an amazing delivery system that works very well. It's not a new form of medicine. There are three other medicines. By the way, this one is called Zabzapret, and it's going to be released, I think, in the summer. It's been FDA approved, and it's a nasal spray, and that's what's brilliant about this. It's in a family of medicines that we, we've had for a while that knock out, block the protein that stimulates the pain pathways along the nerves that lead to a migraine headache. So this is very physiologic. This knocks out the ability of your brain to actually have these headaches. So it's wonderful. Now we have a few products that are on the market that are sublingual under the tongue. There's Nurtec, there's Amavig, Adjury, Emgality. Those are, those are out and they've been out for about five years and they're brilliant. And you can use those for prevention. You can use those uh, for the acute attacks. The beauty of the nasal spray is that it's absorbed, obviously, in the mucosa in the nose. It's not absorbed in the stomach. So these pills that were taken into the stomach created a lot of nausea. They don't have any vasoconstrictive effects. Some of the older ones uh, work by constricting the blood vessels that would go into spasm that would then create the headache. So this product, these products do not have that capacity. So you can use this nasal spray in people that have heart disease, predisposed to stroke or peripheral artery disease. So there, there are a lot of great advantages to these. When do you take it, David? It's like, you know, with the COVID, you got to take your Paxlovid at the exact right time. How do you know, it, is it the onset when you suspect you're getting the migraine? Or you have to hit it right, is there a sweet spot or can you take it during? You take it immediately when you're getting the headache. But Peter, that's a great question because there are people that get migraines and get an aura. They get flashing lights, they get sound, they get something that tells them the headache is coming. By the way, those people that have migraines with an aura are double the risk for getting a stroke. So if you are a migraine sufferer and you get an aura, you want to treat the migraine. Are auras, so, David, because we are dealt with epilepsy in the family, I was told that those, or when you have auras like that, that that really is some, some kind of a seizure, a small seizure. Is that accurate or is it a different kind of aura? It may be. I think, I think it's all about vascular spasm. I think it's all about the blood vessels going into spasm. Women are three times more likely to get a migraine than a man. And I think that's about estrogen. I think that the estrogen can create some spasm in these blood vessels. And it's the spasm that's the problem. In the past, what we've had is we've had triptans. Triptans are vasoconstrictors. They constrict the blood vessels so they can't spasm. And those are things like Maxalt, Zomig, uh, Imitrex. Imitrex actually came out with a nasal spray, wasn't quite as successful. And also it didn't work the same way as these drugs work. So you still have the vasoconstriction, you had those problems with that. We use beta blockers. Those are medicines that also mitigate the spasm of a blood vessel. And obviously we use painkillers. And Peter, to your point earlier, when you take these 
other medicines, you often have to repeat these medicines. So now you're taking these medicines, the drug wears off, you need to take the medicine again, and pretty soon you're getting side effects from these other medicines. So this is sort of a brilliant step for for us treating migraines. The only time I ever get a headache, ever, is lately continuously because of the rain. But when it's really bad rain, I get a bad sinus headache. It lasts a day, and I never get. I I can count on my one hand how many times I've had a headache in my life, other than when it rains. So those allergens that are delivered to Earth in a rainstorm, they stir up, and those allergens, whether it's grass, whether it's trees, whether it's whatever it is out there that gets stirred up by the rain, those come into your system, and they create. A sensitivity reaction and your mucus glands secrete mucus to try to encapsulate those allergens and you get congested and that can also lead to a headache that's not and a does migraine. this work on that does this oh, so this won't no. work on that got no. it i got it and how long does this last you said this takes this is it it, it works it's done they work within 15 minutes so it's it's pretty immediate my mother used to have to go into the bedroom, turn off the lights, or at least she told me that's what she was doing, turn off the lights and quiet and no noise in the house. I mean, it was a nightmare, you know? And I remember people putting hot compresses on, the whole deal. What's amazing to me is that there are so many migraine sufferers out there. Yeah. And when someone comes into my office and they start describing their migraines and I ask them, have they ever tried or heard of these newer medicines? They haven't. They think the best way to do this is with a painkiller. Uh, some of them know about these um, tryptin medicines. Very few people know about these uh, protein blockers. So well, ask you your know. doctor if you're a migraine sufferer about these this class of medicine. Well, I think that that's great that you're telling people this because my daughter was suffering from migraine for a little while and we went to a migraine expert whose name I shall not mention. And he was basically like, I don't know, slug some espresso and take this extra strength of leave and good luck. <laughs> I was like, okay. Really? Thanks, migraine expert. <laughs> so the, wow. So the espresso has caffeine. Yes. Caffeine is a vasoconstrictor. It constricts right. these blood vessels, stops them from spasming. And then as soon as that wears off, your right. headache Then it's in back. your back. Worse. But I mean, listen, and sometimes she would slug an espresso and then immediately want to throw up because the migraine was so strong, you know, and, and I, I just, I, my heart goes out to people who have to deal with migraine. It's a lot. Did this, but, uh, did this person expert have their own brand of coffee in the lobby that they were selling? The <laughs> yes. That would have yes. been brilliant. Brilliant. So I am obsessed with this fetus in fetu, and I know you're going to explain what it is, and we have a caller to talk about it, and I can't wait to talk about it, but also I'm dreading talking about it because I might get nauseous. It's a creepy story. Avery feels the same way you do, apparently. Avery? Hi, Dr. Kipper. I just heard a news story about a fetus that was removed from the brain of a little girl. Could you explain how that could even happen? Avery, I'm assuming that you saw this article that's been circulating recently because one of these cases was just discovered. These are extremely rare. There's probably 200 of these that have ever been reported. And the first one, I'll get into what this is as soon as Anna calms down. The I'm first so one upset. was reported in 1808. Uh, so this has been a been known for a long time. We just don't see this that often. What this is, it's the remains of a malformed fetus from a set of twins, from one of the twins, that ends up um, 
enclosed within the body of the surviving twin. And there's, they don't really develop that far. Uh, there's no placenta for this because, again, it's closed off from that factory. It's in some other part of the brain. Um, most of these end up in areas around the kidneys, the liver. Uh, there, was, <laughs> there was a reported case of a young boy uh, having this in his scrotum. Oh! There's an image. So it can end up anywhere, so it can grow anywhere in the body connected to tissue, yes? Yes. So this particular case uh, was discovered in a one-year-old girl who had some delay in her motor function. She couldn't sit by herself, and she had an enlarged head. So they scanned her, and they found this fetus in a ventricle. In the brain, you have four ventricles. Those are like the brain's kidneys. Those are the parts of the brain. They're fluid-filled, and they're what takes all the toxins and debris out of the brain and cleans it up. And this was a, this was a fetus that had a spinal column. It had a tibia and a fibula. Those are the bones of the leg. It, it actually had um, upper extremities that were coming and, and hand buds, uh, so that you could see very clearly, Anna. I'm assuming you saw the picture. Yeah, didn't like it. It's tragic. It's tragic. Did they remove that, or did they have to leave it because they can't operate? They have to remove these because it's not getting blood supply, or what happens? In this, in in everybody, there's some problem in the neighborhood. So in this woman, this little girl, in the brain, that neighborhood wasn't developing so mm. well, so they get rid of it. These are these are a form of what we call teratomas. They're very similar to a teratoma. It's it's very much the same. It's remains of a twin that couldn't develop, but they end up cystic. They end up in a cyst, and they're found all over the body. And I will tell you another story from personal reference. I was moonlighting. This was 100 years ago at a hospital. About 11 o'clock at night, this woman comes in, and she's got this terrible stomach ache. And I'm speaking to her about her life, and she tells me she's a dentist. And we go ahead and we get a CAT scan. And in the CAT scan, we see teeth. Mm. So this is a woman that had a teratoma, which was these fetal right. remains that was encapsulated in a cyst that was getting bigger. Wow. And it just so happened that this dentist had teeth inside of her abdomen. How bizarre. And you have to remove it. You have to remove it. You can't leave it. Yes. Yes. Well, Avery, thanks, I think, for that question. Although it was a story that's out there and it's just building and building and building. So we thought we would address it as we did. The other stories recap regular marijuana use could impact your heart risk. So be aware of that. Um, there are updated mammogram regulations, so make sure you ask your doctor about that and your doctor's aware of that. And ask for that breast MRI and the ultrasound. Absolutely. It could save your life. Um, also, the nasal spray for migraines. Ask your doctor, if you have migraines, this sounds like the thing, man. You want to you have a... Do we have a cost on that, by the way, David? No, but they... They do think that it'll be similar to the costs of the other drugs in that family, to the Neartec and the Amavig. Okay, all right. And those are not those are not horribly expensive. And because there are four of these products now, five, they're competitive. So the costs come down. They give coupons. So, so check it. So check that, that out. And then the last story from that Avery asked about, of course, was the fetus removed from the brain, and we know more about that and the growth of these twins in your body that have to be removed. 
Thank you, by the way, Dr. Kipper. Thank you for your help in uh, exploring all of those questions. And thank you, Anna. Thank you. If you guys have a question for Dr. Kipper, guess what? You can go to bedsidematters.org, leave us a card, a message, a letter, an email, a carrier pigeon, a smoke signal, and Dr. Kipper just might answer your question. And if you're sick and tired of constantly being sick and tired, follow us at bedsidematters.org. And we'll see you next week. The information on Bedside Matters should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on Bedside Matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.